Good evening, everybody. If you want to <clears throat> go ahead and open your Bible up to Matthew chapter 14, that's where we'll start tonight. And as we do, let's open in prayer. Father, I pray that tonight that you'll just be glorified in all that we say and do and think here. Lord, I pray that tonight you will uh, just take over this place. Lord, I, I know I'm nobody. I know that, that though I don't have the ability to change anybody's heart. Lord, but I just pray that tonight you'll, uh, Father, will you please glorify the name of your son Jesus in the way that we, uh, we, we, we see your purpose for our life in the way that we see what you're telling us in the word. Lord, please call us out where we are, Father God. I pray that you'll um, that you'll humble us where we need to be humbled, and I pray that you give us grace to, to know your purpose for our life, to know the way that you've called us to live, and I pray that you give us grace to repent where we need to repent and, and seek you with all our hearts, Lord. Seek your kingdom with all our hearts and love you in the way that we surrender our lives to you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> So when we last visited Matthew's Gospel, uh, we ended chapter 13 and we saw that Jesus didn't perform very many miracles in his hometown of Nazareth. And that was because, as we said, the people had rejected his message, really who he was, but mainly his message against their unbelief uh, by embracing unbelief. And they used their familiarity with him uh, as an excuse for their contempt for his preaching. And after pointing this out, Jesus leaves Nazareth. And we pick up in chapter 14 with verse 1, <clears throat> which says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, obviously, the works, or excuse me, the word of Jesus' miracles had reached the ear of uh, Herod the Tetrarch. They had spread throughout the land. But that doesn't answer, the, that might answer the question of why he took notice of Jesus, but that doesn't answer the question that should be on our minds. Why would Herod ever think that Jesus was John the Baptist who had risen from the dead? Um, to understand this, we need to know that Jesus was often thought by many people to be one of three basic people or three groups of people who had been risen from the dead. Most people thought that he was either John the Baptist, who had been raised from the dead. Uh, they might have thought that he was Elijah, or they thought that he was uh, one of the other prophets old who had died. Now, I see some puzzled looks on your faces. Why would anybody think he was John the Baptist, who had been raised from the dead, when obviously Jesus had been around while John the Baptist was alive? Well, Part of that may be the, the fact that their ministries, as they reached the apex of popularity, didn't really coincide with each other. What I mean by that is John the Baptist's ministry had seemed to reach its apex about what time? When he baptized Christ. And then immediately after that, what started happening to John the Baptist's ministry? What started taking a secondary seat? To that of Christ. So, you know, in the day and age where there is no Facebook, no television, no radio, no newspaper, you hear things word of mouth. It may be that you hear about John the Baptist, and then most people in, in the stretching areas away from Jerusalem stopped hearing about John the Baptist about the same time they started hearing about this Jesus. That's why that would kind of be one of those, uh, one of those people that people might assume Jesus was. 
But it's amazing that Herod would have adopted either of these opinions that we mentioned. Um, in Matthew 16, 6, we read that Jesus said to his, his disciples, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in a parallel passage in Mark's gospel, we read that he, it says that, and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees again, and the leaven of Herod. These are parallel passages. Um, he's not saying two different things. It's just that Mark's giving us a, a, perhaps a more specific um, statement of the same phrase that Jesus made. Um, if you put these two together, you get what many scholars have held for a long time that Herod, being a tetrarch, considered himself to be part of the aristocratic group known as the Sadducees. Um, the Sadducees were a lot different than the Pharisees. They weren't as rigorous in religion. They didn't stick to the law the way the Pharisees did. They were um, looser, I guess you could say, with their carrying out of, of things of God. Um, but famously, one of the things that all throughout the New Testament sets the Sadducees apart from the Pharisees is that they did not believe that there was such thing as a bodily resurrection. So the reason uh, that Herod believed that anyone had risen from the dead is the same reason that he thought that it was John who had been risen from the dead. If he's a Sadducee and he doesn't, by his theology believe that there is any resurrection from the dead, then why is it all of a sudden he believes that not only has somebody risen from the dead, which is a great abandonment of his stated beliefs, but specifically John? Well, it's because of the same reason that the narrator, the murderer, in Poe's short story, The Telltale Heart, gives in to just paranoia. If you remember that short story, it's because of guilt and shame, right? It's because of guilt that led him to be overcome with paranoia. And the same thing's true of Herod. This guilt so vexed him that Herod abandoned his beliefs for superstition. And he even, this guy who is a ruler, even begins to crumble in the eyes of his subjects, his inferiors. Remember, we just uh, read that this ruler whimpered to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. So the question we have to ask then is why was Herod so overcome with guilt? Was Herod just such a bastion of morality up until this particular time in history that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he does something so outside of his character that guilt just happens to overcome him? Well, no, not really. Um, Herod may have felt guilty because in general, he had a lot to be guilty for. It may have piled up over the years. Um, there are many Herods that are talked about in the New Testament. This is Herod Antipas that we're talking about. His father was Herod the Great. He was the Tetrarch of Galilee, and he had taken the daughter of Aretas, who was the king of Arabia, as his first wife, but then as we know from Scripture, and as we'll talk about in a minute, he later divorced the daughter of Aretas so that he might marry Herodias. By the way, Herodias was the wife of Herod's own brother, Philip, who had not died, but was still alive at this time. So there's a very crazy mixed-up story going on here. Looks like something that 
Netflix or HBO would make a series about at this point. Um, so he has a lot to be guilty for, but the main reason for Herod's guilt is something different. Matthew tells us why Herod is so overwhelmed by guilt that he would think that John the Baptist had come back literally from the dead in bodily form, presumably to haunt him, for lack of a better phrase. And he does it in the next few verses, uh, starting in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 14. It says, For Herod, as Matthew begins to give the backstory here, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. You know, it's been often noted that many of us can imagine our lives ending in basically one of two ways. Most of us like to think of our lives either ending peaceably or in grandeur. Um, many of us are okay with the idea that we would die peaceably at a ripe old age, surrounded by our family and friends in a bed somewhere as we slip quietly and gently into eternity, maybe even in our sleep, right? I know when I was growing up, that's what every time I ever heard anybody talk about death, it was, you know, if, if somebody in the community died, one thing I know that people always stated was, well, at least they just went in their sleep, which might be why when I was a kid I had nightmares. I didn't want to go to bed because I was like, you know, this, this could be it, you know. Um, but other people don't want that. Other people might imagine that, or even hope that while they may not go into eternity in a necessarily peaceable way, um, they might end their lives in a noble way, perhaps a death of martyrdom, because that would seem to be the crescendo of a great life lived for Christ. I know we've talked about it before, um, at the death of uh, Rachel Scott, I believe was her name, um, the young girl who was killed by the, the, the shooters who had come into her school, and they basically asked her, you know, either deny Christ or, or we're going to kill you. And she said, I'm not denying Christ, and they killed her. It seemed like for years after that, um, in every youth group that you went to, it was almost like that was kind of the goal. You know, I'm not saying everybody was militant and that people were, like, preaching you ought to go out and commit suicide or anything like that. I'm just saying it was it, – it, it became kind of a – Almost a, a, a cool idea in young Christian groups, the idea that one day you might die at a gunman's hand in some scene that would show itself in a Christian TV movie where somebody sticks a gun at you and they say, either deny Christ or I'm going to kill you, and you bravely say, I will not deny Christ. And that's how your life ends and you go heroically into eternity. And we can probably all settle with one of those two ends, either that our life would come to a peaceful, gentle end where we slip into eternity, or we die maybe at the hand of some pagan in a foreign country on a mountain only preaching the gospel in a witch doctor's backyard surrounded by machetes or something like that. 
The problem seems to come when we're presented with a death that seems neither peaceful nor exceptionally noble. I want you to think about this. What about a death that seems neither of those two things, but instead seems both tragic and meaningless? What about the man who comes to Christ only a few years before the lifetime of debauchery that he has lived prior to his conversion catches up with him, and he dies with a whimper, with his body riddled by the horrible disease of AIDS? Or what about the young lady who never reaches her full potential because of a drunk driving incident? Or what about the mother of two small children whose life is cut short by a cancer that comes out of nowhere and leaves two young boys in elementary school without a mother and a God-fearing husband with so many questions? In my short life, I have personally witnessed all three of those situations. I had a basketball coach who was one of the greatest people that God ever blessed me to have in my life, whose dear wife died of cancer that came out of nowhere, ravaged her body, and took her from her husband and children at a, at, in the prime of her life. I knew a man who had come to Christ after years of utter debauchery. And though he loved Jesus in the last two or three years of his life, his life was really of no visible worth practically speaking, to the kingdom. He couldn't do anything. He was, in a, he was in a hospital bed the rest of his life, riddled with AIDS, and he died. And I was, I was at the, the helicopter when first responders decided not to put the body of a teenage girl into the helicopter because she had been in a drunk driving accident, and they realized that she had died 30 minutes before, and putting her on the helicopter was just superfluous. And I remember the screams of the father and the grandmother and all the family as they howled in pain. And I hugged the father that I did not know, trying to show the love of Christ the best I could. And in that second, it was challenging for me to find answers when people came to me and said, what does this mean? Because it seems so tragic how these lives end. And it's, it's not that the suffering was so bad is that these deaths seemed meaningless. They don't seem to accomplish anything. And this is a real problem for us as humans. We can't cope with a meaningless death very well. You know, um, if you are into history and you study the conspiracy theories that continue to surround the JFK assassination, you're going to hear some very impressive possibilities, won't you, Kyle? Some people will say maybe the mafia did it. Some people say maybe it was Russia. Maybe it was Vice President LBJ. You're even going to hear about something called the magic bullet. The point is not which theory you should believe. The question is this. Why are there so many theories? Why do we have so many theories surrounding this one death? We've got videos of it. More people have researched this death than probably any other death in history, maybe except for that of Christ. Why so many theories? It's because of our inability to cope. While nameless, faceless people can die in tragic ways all over the world every single day without our even knowing it, when someone like JFK the President of the United States and a man who seemed to be so potent with promise for the future is gunned down in the streets. It seems to be such a meaningless death 
in comparison to how great his life seemed like it should have been, that we can't really seem to make those two fit together. It doesn't work in our mind. It doesn't compute. It has to be more than just a lunatic with a gun. People feel an innate need to find a way to apply some greater meaning to, to his death because he was so important. We need his death to be important, equally as important. And I think we can all relate to that idea because everybody that's ever died was important to somebody. To some, John's life may have seemed to have turned out to be meaningless. If you read back through those verses you just read and you heard about the details surrounding John the Baptist's death, it seems to be somewhat anticlimactic, doesn't it? It seems to be that his life ended up being at least comparatively meaningless. It seems so anticlimactic considering the greatness that seemed to be in store for him. If you look back through Scripture and you kind of just take a very brief summary of John's life. His father, Zechariah, if you remember the story, um, was serving in the temple when an angel appeared and foretold of John's birth. He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And in the last several verses of Chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel, Zechariah, under the power of the Holy Spirit, pronounces a very grandiose prophecy explaining the greatness of his son's coming ministry to Israel. And in verse 80 of that chapter we read, And the child, talking about John, grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. And then John, of course, graduated top of his class at the Wilderness Institute. And upon, that's a joke, guys. And upon beginning his public ministry was immediately recognized as a great prophet from God. The religious rulers, if you recall in John's gospel, even questioned whether or not he was the Messiah. And John, during the course of his ministry, accumulated such accolades as even being the one to baptize the God-man before his coronation as the coming Messiah. John seemed to be headed for ultimate greatness. But then, if you read the story, it seems, in a very from an earthly perspective, that the wheels kind of seemed to fall off of his ministry. His, his ministry began to diminish. His followers began to leave and follow Jesus instead. In fact, the first two apostles called were former apostles of John. His life ended at the feet of an executioner at the whim of an evil king because of a stupid promise made to a young lady who performed a seductive dance in front of a bunch of drunk and worthless men at a party. That seems very anticlimactic. Compared to the beginning of John's life, that seems very meaningless, doesn't it? However, the reason John's life may seem meaningless really is the same reason that we all struggle so much with this idea of meaning for our lives. Um, it's because we don't realize where importance truly lies and where, tr where it truly comes from. You know, if you really look at it, all deaths are tragic. Why? Because they're the consequence of sin, aren't they? The wages of sin is death. 
In the day that you sin, you shall die. The soul who sins shall die. All death is tragic because it's the consequence of falling short of God's glory. While all deaths are tragic in that way, no death is really meaningless, though, because no life is meaningless. And I want you to listen to me. I'm not, the next things I'm going to say, the next few things I'm going to say, I'm not saying this because I decided I wanted to come up with a feel-good message. I'm saying this because this is biblically true. And I think so many of us can so easily get sucked into losing the purpose of our lives and what really gives our lives meaning, especially in light of the last few months of our lives where everything has been thrown up in the air and some of us have kind of succumbed to the malaise of the conditions around us. That I think God wants to give us a reminder here. God goes to great lengths to tell us that all of our lives have meaning. He tells Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now I want to tell you tonight that before you were even conceived in your mother's womb, God knew you and he knew you intimately and he knew you more intimately than anybody else would ever know you, including yourself. He knows things about you you do not know. I bet you if I ask anybody in here, with the exception of one or two obvious outliers, how many hairs are on your head, none of us would guess it rightly. But God knows. He knows every breath you've ever taken. And He knows every breath you will ever take. He knows you intimately. You know why? He made you. He's the one that wove you together in your mother's womb for a specific purpose. He knew everything about you and he has a purpose for your life. You are not random. I think one of the worst lies that we get out of secular culture today, and you see it so prevalently on the other side of that line whenever you go to an abortion facility and you're trying to speak up for the unborn, and you try to get scientific to reason about the glory of God through science to create the miracle of life in a womb. You're going to hear people say that that baby inside that mother's womb is nothing more but a random meeting together of two biological lifeless entities that forms nothing more than a cluster of cells. You are not random. Listen to me. You are not a nobody. I don't care who you are. I don't care how good you feel about your life. I don't care how much you feel like you've accomplished or how much you feel like you are behind or you have not accomplished. You are not a nobody. You are not a cluster of cells. You are a part of God's perfect design. You're not meaningless. There's a reason you were born, and it's not just a random, cliche reason. And I think that's one of the things that hurts us the most when we think about things like this. Whenever we start trying to find meaning in life, we are too quick to try to slap on this Band-Aid answer that we've heard in, in, in children's church or in Sunday school all our lives, and we never really chewed on it and thought about what it really meant. We've taken something that's supposed to be concrete and we've watered it down to being something like scotch tape. 
It's not cliche to say that God gives your life meaning and purpose. It's the foundation of who you are that is, that is set in the fact that God gives your life meaning and purpose. Not just every individual on the planet, but you individually here on this planet. That fact is specific to you. Psalm 139.16 says, For every person that would ever be born... You saw your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. We've said it before, but that word formed there doesn't mean what we might take it to mean. That word formed there means in the original language that God, before you were ever born, before one of your days had ever happened, before the sun had ever risen on you to take your first breath on this earth, God had, as a weaver takes each individual thread and weaves it as he wills through a tapestry to create the full finished product, every detail where he wants it, every color right where he wants it to be, every knot tied just how tight he wants it tied. He has woven your life together. He has formed every second of your existence before your life ever started. Every human has a distinct purpose, a meaning for life. Now some might hear this and some might reject everything I'm saying and this is why. It's because they reject, I, they, they reject God, they reject Christ, they reject the entire idea of God. If you come from a worldview that says that everything is random and this entire complex universe that you and I inhabit where the sun rises every morning and sets every night in perfect synergy with all the universe and you believe that that came out of one of ten jillion possibilities at the roll of the cosmic dice, then what I'm telling you makes absolutely no sense. But that's not the case. And for those who would reject God and reject Christ and reject His purpose, God even has a purpose for their life. Their life has purpose. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called. Child of God, you can never be meaningless because Jesus has given you so much worth and so much meaning. God the Father chose you individually in Christ before the foundation of the world. God the Son took you individually as a part of His bride, flesh of His flesh, bone of His bone, to care for you and nourish you as His own body, as part of His very fullness. He took your sin and was crushed for it under the wrath of God on the cross. And He rose again from the dead, giving you His perfect righteousness. He has then sealed you with His Holy Spirit who guides you, protects you, sanctifies you in so many countless ways 
that when we stand in eternity and we see all the things that He has done for us through every second of our life, I believe that we'll all be ashamed and feel a sense of loss that we did not give God more thanks continuously because of all the ways that He constantly did things in our life and prevented things in our life to lead us in the path that He had foreordained for us to walk in so that we could enjoy all the goodness and all the riches that Christ died to secure for us. Holy, The Holy Spirit of God is literally indwelling you right now as we speak here. God has done all this so that you and I could say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and yet I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. For the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in Christ Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. Who gave himself for you. Yes, all the elect, but don't let that overshadow the fact that Christ died specifically for you. When Christ died on the cross, He was offering a particular atonement for you. And not only has Jesus given us value by making us a part of His very fullness, but He has also rescued us from the meaningless of life that we cannot cope with the meaningless of life that would drive us insane if we were left to it on our own. When we say the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, we find the realization of what we were made for. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, the scary thing for every human being on the planet is that if you miss your God-given purpose for existence, then you're doomed to the curse of a meaningless life, regardless of how you try to solve the problem. You cannot alleviate that curse. Christ is the only one who alleviates us from that and all other curses. Because he became a curse for us. For cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. But with that curse comes all sorts of troubles that plagues humanity. You see them every day. Empty pursuits that can never satisfy. Itches that you just can't scratch enough. Innumerable regrets. Being found lacking on the day of judgment. Obviously for the lost one who would die and stand before the great white throne judgment. But even for those of us who are in Christ, if we lose sight of our purpose in Christ, we risk suffering loss on that day as we stand before the Bema Seat of Christ. And instead of having mountains of gold and silver and precious jewels to give to our King Jesus for all that He has done to us because we love Him and we adore Him and we want so badly in that moment more than all others combined to give Him everything we possibly could and we would go back and take back any second of our life to be able to live it for Him so we'd have something to show Him for His investment in us. Instead, there'll be many we know, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that are going to stand there that day and the fire of God is going to test their works and be found to be wooden, hay, and stubble and there'll be nothing left to remain of their lives though they themselves are saved as through fire and they will suffer loss. 
And this list could go on and on. And if you miss your purpose in life, then any death you die, any death you die, no matter how peaceable it is, no matter how grandiose it seems, no matter where it falls in between those two, if you miss God's purpose for your life, then any death you die will feel meaningless. But if you live out God's purpose for creating you while you have life, then no matter how that life ends, it will not be meaningless. It'll just be God's meaningful end to a very meaningful life. In fact, when even your death is submitted to the will and purpose of God, no matter how meaningless it may seem to anyone, it'll still be accomplishing a purpose that's higher than anything you or I can imagine. John's life didn't seem to end in a noble martyrdom fashion. He wasn't beheaded technically for preaching the gospel, was he? No, it didn't say that he stood there and preached the gospel. He wasn't even like Stephen, the first martyr of the New Testament, the first the, the, that, that preached the gospel of Jesus Christ starting in the Old Testament and going all the way through to the death and resurrection of Christ. He didn't get the grandeur of that. But he died the way he had lived his whole life. He died promoting Christ. He died holding Christ and his concerns up above even his own self. When his own disciples were upset because so many had begun following Jesus instead of John, he replied by saying, he must increase, but I must decrease. See, he was in prison because he stood for the truth in the face of a wicked leader telling him it wasn't lawful for him to marry his brother's wife. Basically, he was confronting adultery in his culture. And that's what you and I are called to do today. I think we're at a point in time in history where I, I, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, especially if you know who Mike means, uh, the camo prophet. But I would dare say that we probably need to jettison all ideas in this country of having any kind of noble persecution. When Christians begin to be persecuted in America, it's not going to be that we're going to be persecuted for the name of Jesus. That's not what's going to be on the TV. That's not what's going to be in the paper. That's not what's going to be on your jail docket or your bench warrant. We're going to be demonized and we're going to be called everything under the sun except for a child of God. And that's what happened to John. He was persecuted, oppressed, he was in prison, he was killed because he dared stand against the adultery and the sin and the wickedness of his culture, starting with the leaders of the culture. He was in prison and he died because the sinners he confronted hated him and they wanted him gone. Does that sound familiar? That's living a godly life. He fulfilled his purpose. He stood for truth in the context that he found himself in and he died for it. And because he lived such a way and he surrendered all he had to God's plan for his life, we see that his life was, in the end, anything but meaningless. If you look back, the angel in Luke 1 had also told Zechariah, talking about John, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, 
And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He's going to come in the spirit of Elijah. And he was going to turn the hearts of a nation back to their God. And after John's death, we see that he had done exactly this. Jesus says of him, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. John fulfilled his purpose. John's life was not meaningless. Just as God equipped John the Baptist to fulfill his purpose, I want you to know tonight he's equipped you. You were made by God with specific gifts and talents and abilities to fulfill his purpose for your life. God had a plan for your life and he made you to suit that plan. It doesn't matter how good you are at some things and how bad you are at other things. You are exactly what God made you to be to fulfill what he made you to fulfill when he created you. Because he knew what your purpose was when he put you together. You were born at exactly the right moment in history. So that as the clock ticks away on your time here. You will intersect the people and the circumstances necessary to fulfill your God-given role. It's not by chance that you meet the people that you meet on your job and in your everyday life. It's not by chance that you have a fender bender with somebody in, in downtown Jackson at 5 o'clock and you have to get out and exchange insurance information. It's not by chance that you come into conflict with people that you don't even seem to know. All you know is that because your worldview is different than theirs, they wish you would shrivel up and die and don't mind telling you. It's not by chance that you come into contact with all of these people. It's not by chance you were born into the family you were born into. It's not by chance you were married into the family you were married into. It's not by chance you were given the children that God has given you to raise. All these things are part of the tapestry of your life that God prepared you for and he wove your days together so that you would fulfill his purpose for you. Everything you endure is a piece of the puzzle as God severs you sometimes from things or from relationships that would hinder you on your journey. And he strengthens you through hardship for the next steps you've got to be prepared to take. It doesn't matter if you're a preacher or a ditch digger. It doesn't matter if you're a teacher or if you manage your own business. It doesn't matter if you're a police officer or a housewife. You are where you are in life at the age you are and within the context that you exist because this is precisely where God intended you for you to be. He's fashioned you to do His will and to serve His kingdom purpose. And one idea I really want you to hit, I want you to grasp on is this. Only you can do this. Nobody else can do what you do. Nobody else can do what God created you to do. We can't replace you with somebody else. You know, and, and this isn't to offend anybody, but do you know why the, the guys who preach and the leaders get so... I don't want to use the word upset, but, but we get so undone when we look out and we see empty seats and we can look at the, we, in our minds, we know the faces of people that should be filling them. You know why that bothers us so bad? It's because we need everybody. 
Now look, I'm not going to be so haughty as to tell you I know exactly what God's plan is for every single person that God has brought into our little church body here. I can't tell you exactly how God's going to use Miss Pansy to bless the entire body. I could probably point out some ways. I know some things she is very good at. I can probably tell you some ways that Buddy is used by God to bless everybody in the room. He's, he's, he's really good at a lot of stuff that I will never be good at. He's really good at a lot of stuff I've seen a lot of people claim to be good at, but they're not. I really can't tell you why I'm here. You know, I mean, I get sandwiched between Tony and Kyle, and I'm like, well, okay, try not to hurt things too bad. It's like the time I was driving the church bus there, Joseph, and that dog ran across the road, and we almost had like a 15-car pileup with a church bus on it. I was driving, of course. It's like, I don't want to be that guy. That's kind of how I feel sometimes. But I know this. Everybody that he's brought in here, he's brought us together because every single person here needs every single other person. Because every single other person was made uniquely by God to fulfill a slot that is custom fit to them. That's why you are where you are in life. I think we need to grasp this. We need to internalize this. We need to chew on this and meditate on this until out of our hearts we can say with David, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. If we do this, then we can bank on the same truth that I believe is no doubt consoling John the Baptist at this moment. 2 Corinthians 4.17 tells us, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Regardless of how you die, or even how amazing or mundane your life may seem prior to your death, if you live your life doing all that you do to fulfill God's plan, then in the end, you're going to understand what it was all about. You're going to understand why every bit of pain, every bit of hardship, every bit of delight, and every bit of detriment was scattered into your life or injected into your life. When you see the glory that He has prepared for you, I don't think there's going to be any more questions. You know, I used to think that, you know, I was a child, Joseph, I used to think that, you know, I would ask myself, you know, when I get to heaven, the first thing I'm going to ask Jesus is, and we've all had that list, right? The more I meditate and the more I think about who Jesus is and how every ounce of love I've ever received from my mom, my dad, my wife, my kids, any of you, anybody, was really totally God loving me through the conduit of those people. When I think about what Christ did for me in spite of who I was and who I would still be without His grace, in moments where my heart is softened by the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, by His grace, by the truth, those moments, you know, where it all comes together, I don't think I'm going to ask anything. I think I'm going to sit there and I think I'm just going to Feel. I think I'm just going to enjoy because that's going to be the first minute when I have my glorified body and I'm before Christ and there's no more sin in me. I'm going to have an emotional ability that I don't have right now and you don't either. There'll be no sin to hinder me. There'll be no brokenness left in me. There'll be no more contrariness in my heart or in my mind. I'll get to love Jesus 
perfectly in that second like I cannot love him now, but I really want to. And I'm going to experience his love for me more in that first second than I ever will in my entire life combined now. All the good moments in personal devotion and in, 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 in seeking him that put together won't amount to anything compared to what it's going to be like in that first second in his presence. And as you enjoy his glory for eternity, nothing you endure here will seem either meaningless or too costly at all. I don't think we're going to remember it all. You'll know what it was all for. God is calling you right now to live the life He has given you, not somebody else's life. Stop looking at other people's lives and start saying, okay, I want to live a meaningful life, so let me find a moral person or a Christian person or who, you know, anybody that I think their life proves that that's meaningful, so I'm going to copy them as best I can so I know I have a meaningful life. No, go on the great adventure of living the life that God has called only you to live. Live the life that Christ has called you to live because only you can live it. Commit yourself to this. Live your life as He has called you to live it because this is how He is providing for you a reward that you and I can't right now imagine. And He's doing all this because He loves you. Don't waste your life trying to imitate somebody else. Spend your life fulfilling the purpose that God has given you as He leads you to find it through His Word. As Ecclesiastes 12 tells us, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That is a meaningful life. However that fits into your context, whatever implications that carries for you, that is a meaningful life. So our lives are not meaningless because God ascribes worth to them in that He has predetermined that each life should fulfill His plan because He gives us meaning, we have meaning. Just as John the Baptist, the way we die doesn't give meaning to our lives, nor does the amount of suffering or pleasure you and I experience along the path. Fulfilling God's plan is what matters. So that leaves us ju with just one loose end to kind of tie up very quickly as the clock ticks away in the next two minutes. What about the Herods of this world? We started with him. Are their lives more meaningful than others? Herod might well serve as a warning here for those who look for meaning in worldly success. Herod seemed to be, if you look at him strictly from an earthly perspective, Herod seemed to be very successful and live a very meaningful life. Um, he was a high-ranking political ruler. He was rich. And he lived, a, he lived the same kind of lifestyle that it seems everybody in the world wants to live these days. He lived a hedonistic lifestyle. It seemed that his life would go as men would hope for their own lives to go, didn't it? However, after Herod had divorced his wife, or his first wife, excuse me, to marry his sister-in-law, his former father-in-law, Eratus, king of Arabia, declared war on Herod. Um... After a long and harsh engagement, Herod was defeated, and the Jewish historian Josephus 
tells us that um, all the Jews thought that this defeat was a punishment from God because specifically of Herod's treatment of John the Baptist. They grasped that while people may seem to get away with wicked things, bringing harm on God's people for a time, ultimately, eventually, the bill comes due. And from there, things only got worse for Herod. After this defeat, and some time passed, he went to Rome to ask for the title of king instead of simply tetrarch. And during this process, out of nowhere, King Agrippa accused Herod of plotting with the king of Parthia against the Roman Empire. The end result was that the Emperor Caius banished Herod to Leons and then Spain, where both Herod and Herodias died in exile in utter shame. Make no mistake, God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. If you seek first the kingdom of God, if you seek first God's kingdom purpose with all your life, then all good things will be added to you. If you sow to the flesh, then all you're going to reap in the end is corruption. God will render all accounts settled one day. That's the promise he gives us. No wrongdoing will go unpunished. He'll either punish it on the cross in Christ Jesus or in hell eternally. But no wrongdoing will go unpunished. Proverbs 21, 12 tells us how God will react. The righteous one, talking about the Lord God, observes the house of the wicked. He throws the wicked down in ruin. But those who put their faith in Christ Jesus for salvation and surrender their lives in service to his lordship at the end of their lives on this earth, regardless of how meaningless the end seems to be, they will hear Jesus say to them the one thing that's going to make it all totally meaningful and all totally worth it. He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father, I pray that tonight you were glorified. Lord, I pray that tonight we were stirred to, um, to not be imitators of men, but to be imitators of you. To surrender all of our lives to your kingdom purpose. God, I pray that you'll stir us up like you haven't before. God, I pray that you'll help us see that you made each one of us for a specific life purpose that, that is totally in line with your word. We don't make it up as we go, but it's also tailor-made to us. You, you, or you tailor-made us to it. And I pray that you'll give us the courage and the grace to, to step out and go on this great adventure that you've put in front of us, God, to just freely follow you as our shepherd, wherever you would lead, and help us submit to you in whatever you call us to do, knowing that in the end, our heavenly reward, eternity with you, is waiting for us, and it's going to make everything worth it. Lord, I pray that you are glorified by this night. I pray that you'll meet the needs of every person here, everybody that can't be here, God. We just pray that you'll, you'll meet them where they are and, and move on their hearts however you need to, Father, for their good and for your glory. Lord, I love you, and we worship you in Jesus' name, Father. Amen.